Hello and welcome to the latest Funds Fan podcast. I'm Kyle Caldwell, Collectives Editor at Interactive Investor. Coming up on the podcast is an interview with Simon Edelston, who is Fund Manager of the Midwind International Investment Trust, which invests in high-quality global shares. I'll also be chatting to Liberty Godfrey, Fund Analyst at Interactive Investor, He'll be running through one of the new additions to Interactive Investors' Super 60 list of investments. Firstly, joining me to talk through a couple of news items is Tom Bailey, ETF's editor at Interactive Investor. But I'm going to start off with the Super 60. As I just mentioned, Liberty will be highlighting one of the new additions at the end of the podcast. All in all, there were six new entries and two removals from the list, following the annual review, which is published every January. There are four new actively managed options, two of which are mixed asset funds, capital gearing and the Fidelity multi-asset income fund. Also added is a UK equity income smaller company option, which is diverse income. And finally, an alternative option has been introduced, which is the Leg Mason IF Clearbridge Global Infrastructure Income Fund. Elsewhere, two passive funds have been added to the Super 60, and they are the iShares Global Property Securities Equity Index Fund and the Vanguard FTSE All World High Dividend Yield ETF. Moving on to the removals, losing their places in the Super 60 are North American Income and the SPDR S&P Global Dividend Aristocrats ETF. In both those cases, Performance did not meet our analysts' expectations. To find out much more detail on why those funds were removed and why the six funds were added, please go to our website, ii.co.uk slash ii-super-60. We're now going to turn our focus to an investment that raised eyebrows last month when the Ruffer Investment Company disclosed it had invested in Bitcoin. Tom, you've been following this story. Could you firstly explain why Ruffer has bought Bitcoin and also then why most fund managers to date have steered clear? Sure. So in uh, December, Ruffer disclosed that they had allocated 2.5% of their portfolio directly to Bitcoin. In Ruffer's view, Bitcoin offers a hedge or insurance policy against the potential for inflation, which obviously is a talking point right now with the kind of huge monetary and fiscal response to the pandemic, as well as being seemingly uncorrelated with other assets. So those are definitely characteristics that defensive fund or trust managers often look for in assets. However, for most fund managers, Bitcoin is just too volatile and speculative to invest in. Earlier this week, Ruffer reported their half-yearly performance numbers to the end of um, last year, in which there was some information regarding how its Bitcoin investments have fared so far. Tom, could you run through those details? Sure. So Ruffer's latest half-yearly report showed that their Bitcoin holdings had gone up by about 90% since purchase. So, so far, their uh, investment seems to be paying off. However, there was also strong performance from some of its so-called Bitcoin proxy holdings. Uh, These are equity holdings in in two companies, one MicroStrategy and the other Galaxy Digital. So Galaxy Digital is a financial services firm involved in Bitcoin and crypto. So obviously, its share price has has gone up alongside the kind of increased adoption and share and a price rise of, of Bitcoin. But more interestingly was the performance of MicroStrategy, because this is a, a mobile software company founded in 1989. So it's not really a cryptocurrency company, 
as such. However, last year, the company strangely took the decision to put some of its cash reserves into Bitcoin. So the value of the company has gone up due to it parking some of its corporate cash into an asset that has gone up. It's all a bit odd, but some argue that this is a growing trend. So Jack Dorsey's financial services company, Square Inc., recently did the same thing. So the idea is that Bitcoin is a good store of value, protecting the company's cash reserves against inflation or whatever. But obviously, for some, this is a bit of a red flag for companies to be doing this. Um, you don't really want companies to use in their, the cash reserves to buy highly speculative investments, especially if that's not their primary competency. And finally, wanted to move on to a, um, a news item that is um, hot off the press at the time of this recording. It's the release of the latest dividend monitor study by Link Group. And the headline figures from the report are that COVID-19 dividend cuts in 2020 totaled just under 40 billion, and that for 2020, dividends fell 44% year on year to just under 62 billion. Tom, could you detail and run through some of the other key takeaways from the report? Yeah, so as you say, 2020 was a terrible year for dividends. The latest report showed that two-thirds of companies cut or cancelled payments between the second and fourth quarters of 2020. In contrast, just over a quarter of companies were able to increase their payouts. In terms of where we go from here, Link Group gives kind of several possible scenarios as usual. The best case, in their view, would be an 8% increase in underlying dividends in 2021, or 10% if you include special dividends. While the worst case scenario, obviously, would be a continued uh, cut in dividends. With the UK economy going back into lockdown and also kind of uh, other, other economies around Europe and the world doing the same, recovery of many of the big dividend payers, banks, oil, it, it might take longer than expected now. Link says that even if dividend growth does return in 2021, though, um, they think it's highly unlikely that dividends will regain their previous highs seen before the pandemic until at least 2025 and potentially even a year or two after that. And as you just mentioned there, Tom, um, one of the key reasons behind Link forecasting that dividends will not return to their previous high levels um, achieved before COVID-19 until 2025 is because of the big reduction in income payments from the two sectors that have historically paid the highest dividends, with those two sectors being financials, particularly banks and oil companies. The report notes for those two sectors, dividends can grow from lower levels from here, but it's going to be a slow process. You know, the message is expect dividends to be reset rather than being what they were prior to COVID-19. For the next part of the podcast, I'm joined by Simon Edelston, Fund Manager of the Midwind International Investment Trust. Simon, welcome to the podcast and thank you for your time. Thanks for asking me. So the Investment Trust invests in high quality stocks worldwide that tap into a long-term trend that you and your team have identified. Could you firstly give listeners to the podcast a flavour of what some of those trends currently are? And in addition, how long-term are the trends? Is it on a five-year view or 10 or 20 years into the future? What we do is we, we try to find long-term growth situations around the world. If you look at the stock market as a whole and you look at the largest companies, you'd be surprised how many of them uh, when you consider their prospects over the next 10 or 20 years, uh, really don't seem particularly inspiring, particularly the very large companies such as the oil companies, probably their best years, many decades behind them. So what we try to do is just identify very clearly areas of long-term growth. Um, some of the ones that may ring a bell are things like renewable energy, replacing um, coal-fired power stations with wind farms. It's been a big theme for us for the last few years. We'll, 
How long will that last? I don't know, five, 10 years quite easily. But once uh, the wind farms have been built, they'll need repairing and they will be the, uh, the utility for the future, we would have thought, the core utility. Another example might be uh, automation stocks. We have a large number of uh, robot makers and control businesses for robots, making them cleverer, able to do jobs they couldn't do in the past. Uh, that leads us to invest quite a lot of money in Japan, uh, where we're quite overweight compared with the global indices. But again, if the Japanese make the best automation equipment, then that's what we want to invest in. And again, time view on that. I think you're going to see increasing trends towards automation, broadening of applications for certainly for the next 10 years. And goodness knows after that. And when investing in high quality companies, how do you ensure that you do not overpay for a company in terms of the valuation? I, th I think this is absolutely key. It's certainly absolutely key for us in a stock market that's uh, gone up a hell of a long way over the last 10 years. Uh, we're just coming up to the 10th anniversary of our unit trust and the 6th anniversary of taking over the Midwind uh, investment mandate. What we do in case of every stock we own is we check how much cash flow the company is throwing off. And we also try to do an analysis which is more in line with value fund managers, look for hidden assets, look for intrinsic value in the company. Not all of the assets a company has might produce cash flow at any point in time. Some of them may be saleable for money while not actually contributing to the P&L. And also, uh, one's got to keep an eye on the liabilities of companies, not just bank debt, uh, but lease liabilities, employment liabilities, environmental liabilities indeed. So we try to take all of that into account. This does mean, and this is, I think, critically important, that sometimes we're selling out of a theme that other people are piling into that's becoming very fashionable um, because we might look at uh, one of our themes and just say, but I'm afraid this theme is now very recognized. Other companies, other fund management businesses are launching funds just dedicated to this theme. That's often a often the sign, I'm afraid. And so the valuations, although there's a good long-term growth story, the valuations have already fully discounted, fully taken up that opportunity. And we think it's time to move on to something not necessarily in the headlights. In your most recent update to investors, there was a couple of interesting changes to the portfolio. Um, you bought Disney as a new holding and said goodbye to Alibaba. Could you run through the rationales for both of those decisions? Yeah, well, starting with the second one, um, we reviewed the Alibaba holding, which we've made very good money in over the years after the Ant Financial IPO, uh, suddenly cancelled by the authorities, the Chinese regulatory authorities, said that they wanted to have a look at the, um, the regulation. Money lending, <laughs> uh, I don't need to tell you, is always a um, highly controversial area in any society, let alone in a big country like China. Um, and it's no surprise, really, that they're they're very concerned that people aren't being lent money irresponsibly uh, and that they set very high standards. Anyhow, we felt that the, the atmosphere, the temperature perhaps had gone beyond that and that there was starting to be a review of the whole of the very complex Alibaba empire. And while a number of governments around the world, the American government, the European governments have talked about regulating online businesses, internet businesses, it struck us that it was much more likely that Beijing would do that more effectively, more aggressively, and more rapidly. And so we, we felt it was time to take, take, take time out of our Alibaba holding due to rising regulatory risks and a rising regulatory threat. Uh, the company is still growing very well, but all the same, we thought, fine, this isn't a time to be in this sort of company. 
the governance, the regulation risk have gone up. We take those risks very seriously when we're assessing as part of our assessment of company. We moved on around the same time. They're not linked. We don't sell one stock and then immediately buy another one. We're quite happy just to sell a stock, leave it in cash and wait for a really compelling investment opportunity to come along. Disney is a stock we've held a number of times over the years. Uh, we've made very good money in this uh, in the early years of uh, running the investment trust, taking over the investment trust six years ago. Uh, the big story in Disney at the moment is is a conflict, if you like, between the new Disney Plus streaming service that they launched in America, which is gaining subscribers extremely rapidly, and which looks to be a, I wouldn't say a competitor to Netflix, but it looks it looks as though it's going to have such a lot of content. Dis, the Disney Corporation has so much well-established, well-known content from its film side as well as its television side. So it's going to be one of the big players in streaming TV over the years. On the other side, of course, because of the pandemic, the parks are currently closed and some of their other activities, being able to send films off to cinemas is also frustrated at the moment. So they've got a load of films they haven't released because the cinemas are closed. So there's there's part of the company doing very well at the moment. There's part of the company moving into the online world through the streaming service very well. And then there's another part of the company where we'll just have to wait and be patient for the world to return to normal, social conditions to return to normal, the vaccine to be rolled out, and then you'll see the the parks recovering perhaps a couple of years out. In terms of um, sector weightings, information technology is the biggest sector weighting, um, accounting for just over a quarter of the portfolio. And in the current top 10 holdings are, well, they include Amazon and Alphabet. Are the strong share price returns that have been made over the past couple of years for these famous tech giants sustainable? Well, we think those two questions are rather separate. Do we think that the returns are sustainable? No, most of these very large internet companies are slowing. Do we think that makes them expensive shares? In some cases, yes. We don't own all of them. Uh, Companies like Netflix, we don't own at all. And our Amazon holding is now rather smaller, probably, than when you look to the portfolio. But it's still 2% of the assets of the fund, so not insignificant. Uh, 25%, by the way, in technology is not unusual for a global equity fund. It would be wildly overweight in the UK equity fund because the technology sector is very small. But in global equities, technology is about 25%. In fact, I think it might be slightly more than that of the global index. That said, we don't worry about the weights of indices. We just don't want to have all our eggs in one basket. We try to spread money around between our themes. The thing I'll say about technology in general, though, is it's it's a rather sort of um, portmanteau word. It covers lots and lots of different areas. And our technology stocks themselves, some of them sell into the cloud computing area, Some of them do home delivery like um, uh, Amazon. Some of them are geared into the American advertising cycle like Alphabet. Many of our holdings now, we've moved our money from the very big stocks towards the medium-sized stocks, which are growing faster, have more road ahead of them than behind them. Some of them are tricky to value on DCFs, but sorry, discounted cash flows. So as I said earlier, we make sure that we can justify owning any of the holdings in our portfolio according to the cash flows they're going to produce over the years. But we prefer to be uh, have a number of smaller holdings at this stage in younger companies with really high top-line growth. Some of our new holdings have uh, sales growing at 20 30% per annum for the next few years. Uh, and, and that's where we think the risk is worth the reward um, if, if they do deliver the, that sales growth. But we live in a period of extraordinarily rapid technological advance. 
Uh, and so that, that needs to be borne in mind. And the final question um, I'd like to ask you is, compared to other global trusts or global funds, you have less in the UK than competitors. I think it's around 6% according to the latest fact sheet. But given the um, Brexit deal, which has been a big headwind for the market ever since the EU referendum, does this make the UK market a more attractive investment destination? We don't have any problems investing in the UK. We didn't have any before Brexit, and we certainly don't have any after Brexit. Uh, The trouble that we have is the UK market doesn't really have listed in it many companies which really fit into our long-term themes. There are one or two automation stocks, for instance, in the UK, but only one or two, and they're, uh, on our analysis, more expensive than the automation stocks we can buy elsewhere. Similarly, there aren't many companies, although Britain is a world leader in putting in place wind farms and renewable energy, there are very few quoted stocks which do anything other than just hold uh, renewable energy assets, such as Scottish and Southern. We do own that company. So it's really just a lack of of opportunities in our chosen theme. And I'm afraid that says something also about the large companies quoted in the UK. They tend to be quite cyclical, oil companies, banks, tobacco companies, although they look quite cheap. The reason that they're on these low multiples is not necessarily just about Brexit, it's because they're quite cyclical businesses. It might interest you, though, that recently our our UK weightings have gone up, but that's because we bought some uh, mining shares. As the world economy expands next year with uh, reflationary policies being put in place by the EU and particularly by the Biden White House with massive stimulus bill there, Industrial mineral demand will no doubt grow. And so we bought uh, holdings in Rio Tinto and Anglo-American. They're quoted in London. Frankly, they have nothing to do with the UK apart from having head offices here. Their assets are mines all around the world, of course. It would look as though we got a high UK weighting. But actually, again, these companies make all their money in dollars. So that's uh, slightly misleading. But all the same, perhaps they look on a modest rating as mining shares because they're in the UK market. I wouldn't know, but they're certainly not exp- they weren't expensive in our analysis, given their potential for uh, recovery growth over the next few years. Simon, thank you very much for your time. You're welcome. For the final part of the podcast, I'm joined by Liberty Godfrey, fund analyst at Interactive Investor. Liberty is going to be running through one of the new funds that has joined the Super 60 list. So which one have you chosen? I've chosen Diverse Income Trusts, which aims to provide capital growth alongside an attractive level of income. It can invest in UK companies of any size, but has a bias towards medium and small companies. This focus differentiates the trust from the crowd, as most other UK equity income funds and investment trusts tend to have higher weightings to large companies. Launched in April 2011, the Investment Trust is managed by highly experienced fund manager duo of Gervais Williams and Martin Turner, both supported by the wider team at Premier Meisen. The managers aim to select companies with prospects for sustainable dividend growth through scrutiny of the balance sheet. They also assess whether the management team can build real intrinsic value as well as whether there are low expectations in the share price. And what does the trust invest in? The Trust's well-diversified portfolio consists of around 120 to 140 stocks, resulting in modest weightings and therefore scaled down stock-specific risk. In turn, this allows the fund managers to find opportunities in areas overlooked by more concentrated mandates. A result of this is around a third of the portfolio is invested in AIM stocks and around a quarter in FTSE 100 companies. 
the bulk of the remaining portion of the portfolio is a split of FTSE 250 and FTSE small cap companies. The trust invests in a broad range of industry sectors in comparison to the FTSE 100. This diversity has shown to be an advantage to the trust when some sectors have struggled. The trust is overweight financials and underweight consumer staples. Among its top holdings are CMC Markets, a spread betting business, Admiral Group, a financial services company, and AO World, an electrical retailer. And how has the trust performed? The trust has seen strong performance over the long and short term. Since launch in April 2011, the trust has returned 188.8% in comparison to 65% for the FTSE All Share and 40.4% for the FTSE AIM All Share to the 31st of December 2020. The trust delivers a quarterly dividend, historically yielding around 4%. The team diversifies their income away from FTSE 100 stocks through investing across the spectrum in AIM, small cap and FTSE 250 companies. It's interesting to note that there have only been a very small number of dividend cuts throughout the recent pandemic, and the team have managed the dividend growth during this vulnerable time for quoted companies. The trust typically trades on a small discount. However, the board aims to manage this to trade at around net asset value. And finally, why do we recommend this trust as a Super 60 option? Well, as you said, the trust is a new addition to the Super 60 following the annual review at the end of last year. The trust sits within our UK equity income, smaller company categorisation. The differentiated approach to UK equity income and the focus on uncovering overlooked areas of the market makes the trust an interesting option for investors. As well as strong performance and attractive yield, the broad opportunity set in the UK offers the trust potential to invest in both established businesses with strong market positions and newer businesses that have scope for growth. Thank you, Liberty. That's all for this episode. Thank you to my guest, um, Simon Edelston, Fund Manager of the Midwinds International Investment Trust. The next podcast will be in early February. Mm-hmm.